its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horns, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the walls of the city will fall flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. And one other verse, verse 10. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. And we know the Lord will bless to us the reading of his precious word. My title tonight is Jericho, an Obstacle to Progress. In chapter 1 of Joshua, we are reminded Moses has died. Joshua has been appointed in his stead. And the Lord comes to Joshua and he tells him he wants him to cross the Jordan. He wants him to go in and possess the promised land. For Joshua, for the children of Israel, it was a day of decision. It was a crossroads in their life. For 40 years, they had been found themselves in that dry, parched wilderness, a dry and barren land. And God was giving them the opportunity to take that step of faith, to step over the Jordan and enter into a land that the spies some 40 years earlier spoke of as a land flowing with milk and honey. We are well reminded, are we not, of the children's chorus? When it says, 12 spies went to spy in Canaan, 10 were bad, 2 were good. That gives away my age right away. And 40 years prior to this, the children of Israel stood on the threshold of entering into the promised land to possess what God had promised them, what God wanted to give them, to be where God wanted them to be. But the spies came back, and we're familiar with the story. They admitted the land was good, flowing with milk and honey, but they also remained, stated that there was the giants in the land, there was the difficulties, there was the problems. For 10, they said, we're not able. It's too much for us. It's too big a task. We can't do it. But Joshua and Caleb said, we are well able. But the people sided on this, the majority. And on this occasion, it was the minority that was right. And once again, 40 years has passed. They've had many experiences. Those who had rejected the offer to move into the promised land had passed away in the wilderness. A new generation had sprang up. And Joshua and Caleb are at the head of the, t- the, the, the tribe. And the offer is there again to pass over, to possess what God had provided for them 
He had still kept it for them. He hadn't done away with it. He hadn't said, you're not having it. You missed your opportunity. It was still there ready and waiting for them. And would they make the right decision? Would they decide to go over? And we thank God that they made use of the opportunity that was offered to them. They forgot the past, the mistakes of the past. The Apostle Paul writing, he says, forgetting those things which are behind, I press towards the mark of the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. I thank God that he's a God of the second chance. He gives you an opportunity. And as we come to look at Jericho, it's not the story, it's not the the destruction of the city I want us to focus on this evening, but it is the reality of the message contained within that story. For God has something to say to us in this 21st century in which we find ourselves. And he's saying we're on the threshold of moving forward into a new experience, into a new revelation, into a new possession, into a new understanding of the things of God. And that excites me. That excites me. Yes, Satan will come and he'll say, but look what you did in the past. (laughs) He's very good at dragging up the past, the mistakes of the past. He wants to put you down. But what does God's word say? He will not even break a bruised reed. He will not even quench a smoking flax. If there's a little, a little flame burning for God, God will blow upon it and cause it to burst forth into flame for his honor and glory. God had said he would give them the land, but they had to possess the land and drive out the inhabitants with his help. So their first task was Jericho. Some would argue, well, we could sidestep it. We could skip around it. We could give it a wide berth. But God had said Jericho had to fall. It was a problem that needed to be dealt with. It was a problem that needed to be sorted out if the children of Israel were to move forward and possess the land. For God said he would give them the land, but they had to possess it. He didn't come and say, there's the land on a plate. You have nothing to do when you walk into it and enjoy it. God had set a plan. He required an obedience from his people. He required a response from his people. He required a commitment from his people. He required a willingness to go through with God. And what did he say to Joshua? He says that every place that the sole of your foot lands on, It's yours. And God is saying to us, I believe this evening, that this town of Mara, wherever we live, wherever we work, we can claim it for God. And as we take our stand of faith, that every place that we put our foot down for God, he will give us victory for his wonderful name. Jericho, the city, the fall of it took place somewhere region about 350 to 400 years B.C. It was built on a mount covering approximately nine square miles, surrounded by two 30-foot walls that run parallel circling the summit of the mound. The inner wall was 11 to 12 feet thick. The outer was about six feet thick. The space between the walls varied from 12 to 15 feet. And at frequent intervals, the two walls were tied together by brick walls. 
on top of the walls that remained after the destruction of the old city of Jericho has been discovered the remains of houses. Jericho, the obstacle that needed to be dealt with. When the children of Israel besieged Jericho, the harvest had been gathered in, and I'm told that those who excavated the old city found ample supply of corn and grain. Jericho, the city, had its own internal water supply that could not be interfered with from outside the city. And so those who discovered these things suggest that Jericho as a city could have undergone a siege of at least two to three years. Joshua spoke as the Lord directed him in verse 26 of chapter 6 of Joshua when he said, Cursed be the man before the Lord that rises up and buildeth this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundations thereof in his firstborn and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates. This was fulfilled in the reign of King Ahab. For we read in 1 Kings 16 and verse 34, In his day did Hai the Bethelite build Jericho. He laid the foundations thereof in Abaram his firstborn and set the gates thereof in his youngest son Segoth according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. We're well aware that Jericho was rebuilt, but what God had spoken, God fulfilled. How the sons died, we're not told. There's two trends of thought that I've come across. One is that being pagans, they were into human sacrifices, and it has been suggested that the firstborn was sacrificed as the commencement of the building of the project, asking for favor from their gods. And the youngest was offered as the gates were put in place as a thank you offering for the completion of the task. I'll not enter into debate on that. I leave that with you. In Joshua 3 and 6, God promised that he would drive out from before them the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. So they prepared for battle. But this was no ordinary battle. This was no ordinary approach to a siege, to overthrowing a city. God had a special plan. He had a special purpose. He had a special way of doing things. And he was, in so doing, he was preparing the people for the task that lay before him. And as we view it tonight, I trust that we may appreciate the wisdom of Almighty God and learn lessons from it. We have here a contest between the men of Jericho and the nation of Israel. Jericho was determined that the Israelites would not be their master. They sewed up the city. They closed it up sound. None deserted the city. None tried to broker a peace deal. None was allowed to come in or out to try and set up a peace deal. For God had determined that Israel shall be its master, and that quickly. And so the captain of the Lord's hosts gives directions how the city should be besieged. 
There was no military preparation. There wasn't a council of war called. God had made his plans. It wasn't to besiege the city. It wasn't to use weapons of man to bombard the walls, to break down the gates. God was going to do a miraculous thing that the children of Israel and even those within the walls of Jericho would have to admit, this is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous. And so, as we look at the siege, and we look at how God outworked this plan, I want us this evening to look at it under three headings. The trumpets of the Lord, the walk of faith, and the shout of victory. God had a plan, and everything was detailed. There was nothing haphazard, or we'll wing it and see what happens. God was organized, even as to how the children of Israel should encircle the walls of the city. He gave strict orders. The possession was that the priests to carry the ark of the Lord. In front of the ark, seven priests to carry seven ram's horns and blow them. In front of them were the men of war, estimated to be some 40,000 men, fully armed and ready for battle. Behind the ark, Joshua and the people. They were to walk in absolute silence round the city once a day for six days, and on the seventh day, seven times. To be done in silence, the only sound to be heard was the sound of the trumpets. And as I thought of this, I thought, what's God saying? And what God said to me was this. The sound of the trumpets was God saying, focus on me. The city was real. Those 30-foot high walls were real. The challenge was real. God wasn't saying to the people, bury your head in the sand like an ostrich and pretend there's no problems, everything's all right. But what he was saying to them, take your eyes off the problem and focus on me. What does the course writer say? Keeping my eyes upon you, Lord. Keeping my mind just stead on you. Giving to you my every fear, knowing you care. God said to the people, get your eyes on me. And he had a purpose and reason for that. For as they did so, they would remember God. And they would remember how God met their needs in the past. We're so absent-minded, are we not? We're so prone to forget. We take things sometimes for granted when, God, when we've called upon God and God has met our needs. God has answered our prayers. God has opened doors for us that were closed. And so far down the line, we hit a problem, we hit a challenge, we hit a difficulty, and we're uptight. We forget how God met our needs in the past. And I believe God was saying to the children of Israel, remember me, remember my plans. And none of them failed. They all worked. They would remember how God brought about their deliverance in the past. They would have thought, no doubt, on the recent crossing of the River Jordan. Scripture tells us Jordan was in flood. It had overflowed its banks. Commentators say that when it overflows its banks, it can be at least a mile across. 
It was the most dangerous, most difficult time to be making a crossing of the River Jordan. And no doubt there were those among the children of Israel who would argue and say, well, let's wait a wee while. Let's wait till the river subsides, till it goes back to its normal size, and then we'll attempt the crossing. But God said, no, this is my time. This is the time you cross when I say, not when you say. And for God, whether the river was a mile across because of the floods or whether it was a normal river just a few feet across, was immaterial. Man looks at it and he says, well, one's easier than the other. But God says it makes no difference for with him all things are possible. And as God was working I believe the reason behind going at such a time was he wanted to impress not only upon the children of Israel the fact that he's able to do far exceedingly abundantly above all that they could ever ask or imagine. But he wanted to make a point to those who were looking on. For we made, made aware that the Amorites and the Canaanites were watching. And my thoughts on this were, no doubt they were watching, they were spying they were finding out what the opposition was. They were endeavoring maybe to unite forces and to rise up against the children of Israel and put these people to flight, put them into bondage if needs be. But what does the Scripture say? It said, when the Amorites and the Canaanites saw it, they were filled with fear that their hearts melted, neither was their spirit in them anymore. God took the fight out of them. They had no heart for the battle. When they saw the greatness of the children of Israel's God, they realized they were up against something that they couldn't win. They couldn't defeat. And then, no doubt they would think back over their journey in that dry and parched wilderness, how God put food on their tables, how he provided them with manna in the wilderness. You know, there's an awful lot of talk today about instant meals. No, you just take it, stick it in the oven, stick it in the microwave, and it's ready. No preparation, no nothing. They say it's an invention of the modern day. God was thousands of years ahead of them. For he didn't say to the women, get your bacon bowls out. He didn't tell them to heat up their ovens. I'll provide the ingredients, and you do the work. No, he provided it. Mixed, cooked, ready to eat, and home delivery. God fed them with manna. Not only did he feed them in the wilderness, but he fed them even when they entered the promised land until they ate of the first grains of the harvest. This was the greatness of our God. And then they would remember when they were thirsty. You know, we don't appreciate water, really. We don't really know what it is to be really thirsty, to be going without water, as there are many people do in various parts of the world. But for the nation... They cried unto God, we have nothing to drink. God provided water out of the rock. It wasn't a little trickle. It wasn't a little spring, but it was a gushing forth of water. For we are told that they numbered approximately two and a half million people. And someone has worked it out that to provide ample drinking water just for the people, never mind their animals, would take 100 million liters of water a day. And for those of us who are of a certain age, that's slightly over 22 million gallons a day. This is our God. 
Can we imagine that? Coming out of a rock, what a river must have flowed and flowed daily to meet the needs, not only of the people, but of their herds. And then God would no doubt take them back to what they had heard about their deliverance from Egypt by ten plagues and how God brought them across the Red Sea and destroyed the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. What a sight it must have been for their parents who crossed the, 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 the sea, the Red Sea, to see the army following them, setting off to the same path as they had taken across the Red Sea, and filled with fear and dread, no doubt, thinking this is the end. And God closes the gap, and they're drowned. The taskmasters, the bullies, those who had suppressed them, those who had made life misery for them for approximately 130 plus years, wiped out in one fatal swoop. Such is the greatness of God. And in so doing, they were being encouraged in God and His plan to defeat the inhabitants of Jericho. Can we remember? Can we remember God? Can we remember what He has done for us? What He has promised He will do for us? How He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us? How He has promised to help us and keep us? What does He say? We, no one shall pluck us out of the palm of His hand. That's such a grip. As a parent, we get a grasp on our children, on our grandchildren, and we hold tight, a fear of them breaking loose, getting into problems and dangers. That's the hold God has upon those who are walking with Him this evening. Praise His wonderful name. The trumpet of the Lord. But what of the walk of faith? This surely was a testing of the people's patience and obedience in walking around the city. I tried to put myself in their place. I tried to think, well, what were the thinking? What thoughts were going through their mind when Joshua says, this is what God wants you to do in silence, walk around the walls of the city. And I wonder on that first morning when the word went out from Joshua, gave the commandment, it's time to get ready, it's time to assemble, it's time to make our move for that day. I'm sure between the two and a half million people there were souls who were filled with doubts, concerns, some who weren't 100% convinced, but nevertheless they were required to join and walk. And as they set off on that first walk, that first morning, in silence, only the sound of the trumpets being blown, and as they walked, I wonder what thoughts were going through their head. No chat, no conversation, there was nobody getting somebody wound up that this isn't going to work, this isn't going to happen. God said silence. And they were alone with their thoughts as they walked. And what did the people in Jericho think? To see this vast crowd of people parading around their city, not trying to get in, not using weapons, walking around, the only sound was the sound of the trumpets. And as they walked, I'm sure they might have thought, well, these are a great group of Egypts. 
as we would say here. These people aren't right. What do they think they're going to do? They think they're going to defeat this strong stronghold by walking around the walls? They were in for a shock. But perhaps they joked, perhaps they laughed, perhaps they even hurled some abuse at the people as they walked around. But yet they walked. And as they continued to march, they began to build up their trust, their faith in God. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 25? Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And as each day was completed, second day, a bit more confident, third day, a bit more confident, a bit more assured, God was preparing them physically, mentally, for the task that lay ahead. And God had told them there was going to be victory. There was going to be a victory. Victory was on the way. Some of us wait for our victory over a long period of time, but God has specified that their victory would happen in seven days. In seven days, before that, on the seventh day, before night, they should, without fail, be masters of the city of Jericho. See, God required of the nation that they not only talk the talk, but they walk the walk. So easy is it not for each and every one of us. We say we believe God, we trust God, we're standing on the promises of God's Word, we accept what God says. But when God says, right, act upon it, that's when the real challenge comes. That's when we are reluctant. Maybe we'll say, well, maybe not just at the minute. I believe you, Lord, but give me a wee bit more time. But God required the nation of Israel to act physically by walking round the walls. And then what about the shout of victory? The six days have been completed. It's the seventh day. They rise early at daybreak and walk around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, the priests blew the trumpets. Joshua told the people to shout. And the people shouted with a great shout. And the walls fell down flat. And the people, pardon me, entered the city. God was faithful. God did what he promised he would do. Joshua records for us in verse 21 of chapter 6 that they utterly destroyed all that was in the city both man and woman, young and old, an ox and sheep, an ass with the edge of the sword. Some would say it's over the top. Some would say it's a bit extreme. Some would say there was no need to go to as far as that. But this was God's appointed way. And God's way had a purpose in that it was to magnify Him as God in His own power, that he might be exalted in his own strength and not in the strength of the instruments of war. It surely tried the nation of Israel's faith, obedience and patience, and also tried them whether they would observe God's plan, which to human thinking seemed foolish to obey and believe, a promise which to human thinking was impossible. So by faith... Not by force, the walls of Jericho fell down. And in so doing, it was to encourage Israel that in the difficulties that lay ahead of them, 
on entering that promised land. The strongest, the highest walls cannot hold out against Almighty God. The success was down to God's plan, God's timing, and a willingness of the people to trust and obey. The city, the obstacle to progress, was utterly destroyed. The challenge for the church today is what are the obstacles that stand in the way of progress of the individual Christian and of the church as a whole? For there are obstacles. And some have said, well, we can skate around them. We can tolerate them. We can put up with them. But God says they need to be destroyed and utterly destroyed. God knew that if Jericho didn't fall, the children of Israel, they may have escaped a conflict for a few days or a bit of time, but eventually it would come back to haunt them. And how many have adopted that attitude and they said regarding certain things, well, no, uh, there's no harm in it. I'll tolerate it. I'll put up with it. I'll give it a bit of space. Thinking that they've solved the problem, but they haven't. It comes back to haunt them for they're down the line. And if I was to ask you, what are the obstacles that you can think of? They may be wide and varied. The problem is, for people, irrespective of what the obstacle is, they need to deal with that problem. There are many things happening in the world today, and God is not happy. There are also many things happening in the Christian church that are against the teachings of Scripture itself, and God will judge those involved. There is a need to return to what the Scripture says, and another rejection of all things that are not according to God's Word. For many in the Christian church, they have decided to choose what parts of Scripture to believe and not what not to believe. But God's Word remains the same. It hasn't changed. What does the Gospel writer in Matthew record when he records the words of Jesus? When Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Irrespective of whether we accept God's Word or reject it, God's Word remains firm. It hasn't changed. It hasn't altered. God hasn't said, I'm putting an amendment in here. He has spoken His Word, and His Word has stood the test of time and will stand the test of time throughout all eternity. But one of the biggest obstacles I feel is that Satan is at work. He's gone back to basics, as he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does Moses tell us in Genesis 3 and 1? Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden. Up until this point in time, Adam and Eve were enjoying their paradise. They were enjoying fellowship with God. They were enjoying the lifestyle. It was a wonderful lifestyle. No labor, no struggle. And Satan comes and he sows a seed of doubt. Up until that moment in time, they never questioned God. They never questioned the meaning of God's word. They lived their lives according to God's word. But Satan came and he sowed that seed. Hath God said. And from the sowing of that seed, Eve transgressed 
and the fall took place and they were cast out of that perfect paradise forever. Satan, I believe, is adopting the same attitude today. He's coming to pastors, ministers, elders, church leaders, congregations who are more concerned about offending man and God. And he's saying, hath God said? And that which has been the foundation of the Christian church from its very conception has been eroded away. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 11 and 14? For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. He comes as an angel of light. As he beguiled Eve in the garden, he's beguiling the church today in many areas. We have had ample evidence of it, particularly in this year so far. Paul takes up the challenge with the Galatian church. In Galatians 5 and 7, Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? Paul faced the problem. He had come in, he had preached, he had ministered in the Galatian church, he had established the word. People had embraced it, they had accepted it, they had adjusted their lifestyle accordingly to it. And then all of a sudden they started to change. Paul asked the question, what happened? What hindered you? What brought about the change? See, they weren't prepared to live according to God's word. They wanted a different lifestyle. They wanted a different way of life contrary to the teaching of Scripture. And how many within the Christian church, that is the stance they have taken at this moment in time. Paul writing in Galatians 6 and 7 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation 22 and 19 gives us a stern warning regarding the word of God in which he says, If any man shall take away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. God shall take away his part out of the book of life. When I read that, it went straight through me. Who's in the book of life? It's the Christians that's in the book of life. And John warns, God shall take away their part out of the book of life. That's a very strong warning indeed. God said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church has been attacked from the outside, but also from the inside. Satan just hasn't got his toe in the door. He's in behind the door. And what he has started, he has no intention of stopping. Reverend George Duff, Duffield of Pennsylvania was a minister in the Presbyterian Church, 1840 to 1888. He took a strong stance against slavery and a strong stance on the Word of God. There were those who supported him. There were those who were against him. And it brought about a split even in the church at that particular time. But he stood his ground. And a fellow minister and supporter of him, in 1854, lay dying as a result of an accident. And he sent a message to the Reverend Duffield. And he says, stand up for Jesus. And he maintained a stance. And in 1858, he preached a sermon 
on Ephesians 6 and 14, which says, Stand therefore, having your loins girthed about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. And having preached a sermon, he then introduced to his congregation what we know as the hymn today. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high the royal banner, it must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory, his army shall he lead till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. He took a stand. He nailed his colors to the mask. I believe God would challenge us this evening that we do likewise. And I finish just believing one thought with you. For evil to succeed, for wrong to advance, it will only require that good people do nothing. Thank you.